Welcome to another edition of Simon's Says, a podcast devoted to conversationalists and the curious-minded. Here's your host, me, the follically challenged Dave Simons, certified financial planner and all-around nice guy. Hello again, everybody. So just a couple of days ago, I'm at home and I'm perusing my beautiful bookshelf at home. As I've talked about before, I'm this voracious reader and I don't throw away things very easily. So I have all of these favorite books, hundreds and hundreds of them on this bookshelf that I have at home. And for some reason, one book in particular kind of caught my eye up here. And I thought, you know what? I haven't opened that book in a long time, like ye- if not decades, it's, it's been a long time. So I pulled it off the shelf and I started just kind of opening it and, it, and it came to one page. And this is going to be really strange as you see this podcast start to unfold about, are you kidding me? It really fell to that one page. First of all, what, what's the book that I'm talking about? It's this book on the St. Louis Blues. You might recognize the author here. Uh, yeah, it's on the 1991-92 uh, St. Louis Blues season called Blue Fire. It was a labor of love. Let me tell you why I even decided to write that. The year before, this is back, of course, in my old sports reporting media days at the CBS affiliate here in St. Louis. The year before was 1990-91 season. The Blues had finished with the second best record in the NHL that year. They were a really dynamic team. The old Hull and Oates. At that year, they had Scott Stevens, another future Hall of Famer, Curtis Joseph in goal. It was a really, really good team. Now, as typical for the Blues back in those days, they made it to the second round of the playoffs and they lost. Okay. 9192 was going to be their 25th year as an organization as they would say in Canada. And for some reason I just thought all the planets are going to come in alignment. They're going to go to the Stanley Cup. They have all of the same players coming back. They're really upset that they had such a great team, the same teams coming back, 25th year in existence. They're going to win the cup and I'm going to be the guy to record it. So I went to ownership at the time, and I said, I'd like to be embedded with the team more than my usual reporting duties. And they agreed. So that year was a great year in my life. I I traveled with the team. I took time off for my job at Channel 4. I got to know families. I would go to their homes and and got some real real personal details on all the players. Well, as fate would have it, it was not a good year. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. Scott Stevens, because of a controversial court ruling, left the Blues, went to the Devils, where he would win cups. We got Brendan Shanahan, another great player, but the the team just never gelled. They were a 500 team. They barely made the playoffs, and they were ousted in the first round. And that book (laughs) covered a season, really, that didn't amount to anything. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because of the page that I fell upon here. So when the season was over, we were on Brian Sutter watch. The speculation was this former great blue, whose jersey still hangs in the rafter in the local hockey arena here in St. Louis, number 11, one of the great all-time blues players. The head coach at the time, all of a sudden people are like, yeah, your time is done. I think it's time to go. This was supposed to be a great team. This, you're the head coach. You're the fall guy. You got to go. He really was feeling the pressure. So let me read to you, and for those of you watching on YouTube, um, you'll see the words here, but this is very, very telling. Keep in mind the context of this. This is the night 
that they lost game six of the first round and were ousted. And Brian Sutter, the coach, was very, very defensive. Brian, or he, Brian Sutter, had grown tired of reading derogatory things about himself in the paper. He was absolutely steamed hearing Kevin Slayton, a controversial radio personality, tell his listeners that Brian Sutter was a joke of a coach. In fact, following the Blues' loss to the Hawks in Game 6, Sutter accused Slayton's station, KASP, of going or giving out his home phone number so angry fans could call and harass his family. The accusation was never proven, and some speculated Brian made it all up in an underhanded attempt to make Slayton and his station look bad. All the memories came back. I'm like, I remember that very, very well. And what happened just a day later, now I've never seen this happen before or since, where a head coach decides that he is going to throw out or, or show an olive branch to the media to plead for his job. So Brian Sutter calls a special meeting just for media people, 13 of us. I'll never forget this. Sutter is at one end of this long table, and this was in a conference room at the old arena. So here's Brian Sutter. For whatever reason, I took up the far end, so I'm looking directly at Brian. And then six media guys on each side, print, radio, TV, including the aforementioned Kevin Slayton, was seated to my right. I still remember this. Now, those of you in the St. Louis area, you know that we don't go after our athletes and our coaches very often. That's East Coast stuff, right? That's New York, the hot takes, right? It offends our Midwest sensibilities a little bit. So it was the usual questioning, well, Brian, what do you think went wrong this year? And if you came back, what would you do differently? And then it was Kevin Slayton's turn. Now, Kevin was professional, but very pointed, direct questions, more than anyone else was asking. And you could see Brian Sutter's, I'm (laughs) not kidding, he was getting kind of a rise out of it. And even though he knew Kevin's name, I'll never forget this, he would not mention his name and he would say, well, sir, let me tell you something, sir. And I just thought, is this guy, is this head coach about to reach across the table? And there was some tension here. Nobody else was saying anything. Well, long story short, of course, nothing happened. Except a day later, Brian Sutter was fired. So his attempt to appease the media and do his bidding through us didn't work. You knew it wouldn't work. So Kevin Slayton, right? You know him, you love him. I'm reminded of the old saying that, that, that Howard Cosell made famous, right? I'm paraphrasing here, but you love me, you hate me, just talk about me, right? And one of the things that I remember, because I've listened to Kevin Slayton for a long, long time, and, and one of the things that, that I would love is when he, some angry caller would call up and get really mad at Kevin, and he would say, I'll never listen to you again. <laughs> and Kevin would always say, yeah, you will. Just in a very simple, yeah, you will. You can't stop listening to me. And it would make the guy even matter. No, I won't. I'm, I'm, I'm just sitting in my car going, yeah, he will. I know that how it worked. So, you know what I think we should do? We should bring in the source of, of who I'm talking about. The rabble rouser. The loud mouth. The guy you love him. You either hate him. The one who's not afraid to push back. The one who made a hot take, a hot take before that was even a thing here in the Midwest. So let's bring him in on this edition of Simon Says Podcast. King Kevin himself, 
Kevin Slate. Welcome, Kevin. How you doing? I'm good. I, I'm sitting here listening to that story, and I remember it vividly. Oh, do you really? I was going to ask you. I should tell people that you didn't know that I was going to say that beforehand, so I wanted no. to kind of surprise you with it and ask, do you remember it? You, you mentioned you'd have a story to tell, but you didn't tell me what it was, and so I was anxious in anticipation. And as you started into the story, I was thinking in my mind, before you got to the part where he called the media together, I'm thinking... Well, the first thing I'm going to talk about is when Sutter called the media together. I'll bet you Dave doesn't remember that. And sure enough, yeah, you do. Yeah. That was the story. But I was where I am now, I would have been sitting right here. Sutter was right there. Yes. And he's, he's talking about the way he prefaced everything was he talked about Kevin Slayton gave my number out and blah, 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 all of this stuff before he took any questions. And I'm sitting there listening, and I'm thinking, he doesn't even know who I am. I'm sitting right next to him, and he's unaware. <laughs> so then when I started peppering him, and I finally said to him, I said, you know, I am Kevin Slayton. <laughs> and I don't think he did. I forgot that part. <clears throat> you did. You said, yeah. I'm the guy yeah. you're talking about. I, I don't think he knew. He was that, uh, I don't know if delusional is the right word, but I remembered when he said that I gave his home or his cell number out or his home phone number, I can't remember which it was. I called Bernie Federico and I said, Bernie, are you aware that Sutter is telling this? He said, I've heard it. He said, don't listen to it. Don't pay attention. But I said, Bernie, I don't even know his number. I have no idea what his number is. And if I did, I would never give it out. Yeah. And he said, I know you wouldn't. And I know you didn't. And he said, and everybody else knows it too. He said, Brian just goes off the deep end and he's gone way off the deep end mm -hmm. here. I think he was so angry that they lost, number one. Yep. And number two, there needed to be a scapegoat. And I was a perfect one yep. for him. And to call the media together, as you accurately pointed out, to save his job. And he wanted us to do his bidding. And to be quite honest, most of the people in the media would have done his bidding. Yeah. They were well, happy to do it. Well, I want to get to that, too, because that really gets to who you are, because you're never going to do that never. for anyone. So how do you think, and I don't mean <clears throat> to just point out St. Louis, because I think it is a Midwestern <clears throat> thing for a lot of things, but does that, over the years, Kevin, do you look around and go, why am I the only one doing this? Yeah. Why do I have to be the yeah. bad guy? Why are you? That uh, It has bothered me for some time. I, I remember saying to myself one time, why am I always swimming upstream mm -hmm. and I have no company? And I remembered, it's funny you brought up Howard Cosell, because uh, the Monday night crew was here doing a Cardinals-Giants game in the 70s. And I went over to the stadium. I was at Channel 4 at the time doing the sports. And I went over, and I had always admired Cosell. He was the guy that I sort of patterned my life after. I'm, we're both lawyers. We both share the same birthday. Oh, really? We're both okay. sportscasters. And we both are not afraid to say what we think. And so I went up to him and introduced myself to him. And we had a great conversation in the uh, press box at the old Bush Stadium. And he said to me, and I never forgot it, and uh, I had already adopted this kind of a style, but I, he said, find the void and fill it. Mm. And I remembered him saying that, and I remember to this day, vividly, the void is nobody tells the truth. Nobody is, everybody's afraid to question people. Uh, there are no sacred cows. This is sports. I mean, we're not talking about the Pope here. So um, I did. I, I always kept that in the back of my mind as a guiding light find the void and fill it. Wherever there's a void, you fill it. And he said to me, you will always be successful if you do that. He said, now that doesn't mean you'll be popular, but you will always be successful and you'll always be able to sleep at night. But you can't fake that. So No, you can't. You, I, I, I was already doing it. Right. So and the point I'm making there is people may agree with you in the media, but and they would never say this publicly, but they'll pull you aside and go, I just can't do that. That's not who I am. It's like, okay, fine, that's your personality. 
that came somewhat naturally for you. You you just didn't care about the establishment. Did right? not care. Yeah. Did not care. And I was trained in journalism school as a journalist, not as a cheerleader. And that always grated on me that most sports people are cheerleaders. Most. There's exceptions, of course. Um, to this day, Dave, I just did an interview today, and I got a text from another media member who said, uh, you know, nobody can do this like you. It was an interview. It was a controversial interview. Oh, yeah. I said, nobody does this like you. And I wanted to say, um, and you won't. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not afraid of the explosions that might follow if, if you're fairly asking questions, mm. if you're asking questions that need asking, if you're not carrying on a personal vendetta against anyone, you don't have an agenda, you just want to get to the truth. As long as you're doing that, if that's your guiding force, then I, f I have no uh, problem sleeping. Yeah, I don't care what the ramifications are. So maybe I'll get fired. Maybe they'll get fired. Yeah. Well, you've been fired a couple of times. I've been fired. We'll, we'll get to a few of those. I've quit. I've been fired. <laughs> yeah. I've, yeah. I've, I've touched all those bases. <laughs> so let's go back to the beginning. You're a St. Louis kid. Right? I am. Where you grew up, and where'd you go to school? And grew all up stuff? in North County. Uh, went to uh, CBC High School, mm -hmm. and then went on to Mizzou. Uh, went to Elmsville for two years, then transferred to Mizzou in journalism school. Um, got my journalism degree there. And that but, was about when? when uh, that would have been in '76. Uh, so, so I was a bicentennial uh, grad. Al Onofrio days? Al Onofrio. Yeah, right Al before Powers I, came in. Uh, it was prior to Powers. Yeah. Uh, Onofrio and I had a great relationship. Mm -hmm. While I was a student there, I had developed great relationships as in the journalism school covering the sports teams. So Norm Stewart is a friend of mine to this day. Yes, he is. If Al Onofrio were alive today, we'd, we'd be friends. Dan Devine was a friend to the day he died. Mm -hmm. In fact, credited me with getting him the athletic director's job at Mizzou because he was in retirement. And on the air one day, I said, well, you know, we need Dan Devine back. That's the problem down there. We need Dan Devine. You know, so I, I do remember I started that. a campaign to get him. Joe Castiglione was down there working in their marketing department then. He's now the AD at OU. And uh, so Joe started making a little noise. And lo and behold, they contacted Dan. I had him on my show, and he said, if drafted, I shall yeah. serve. And he did. And, they, and he did. So, well, yeah, Alan Afrio days. And um, – then I, I went uh, out of when I was out of school and working in the journalism business. Ten years later, I thought, you know what? I don't want these people having me under their thumb. I'm going to go back and get a law degree, and so I did that. Where'd you back to Mizzou? Back to Mizzou. Okay. Went to Mizzou Law School and got out of there in seven. Let's see. Let me think this through. Uh, it would have been seventy nine. Um, when you got out of law school? No, I'm sorry, eighty nine. Eighty nine. Okay, 89. that's what I thought. Ten years later. That's what I thought. Eighty nine. Did you later. ever use it? Did you become a practicing yeah. attorney? Yeah, and you I still did. am. I, but all I do is help kids who get in trouble. Okay. That's the only, that's all I do with it. I, I don't uh, make it a full-time practice Got at it. all. Got it. It's just helping out. And that's pretty much what I've done. I've worked at a few law firms, hated it, mm. uh, hated other lawyers, yeah. <laughs> hated, hated judges, yeah. hated the whole system. <laughs> it's so corrupt. I had to get out. <laughs> so I still do it, but uh, I only do it where I, uh, you know, I feel comfortable in the jurisdiction. Got that it. I'm working Got with. it. So let's go back to that bicentennial year. You're leaving Mizzou. Where was your first broadcast job? Portland, Oregon. Oh, is that right? Portland, Oregon. Got hired there. And um, Jay Randolph, I had interned with Jay and Ron Jacoba at Channel 5. And uh, the greatest thing I ever did. It was the smartest thing I ever did. I got that internship because my mom wrote a letter to Ron Jacober, who happened to live about five minutes from our home. And um, just on a lark, she wrote him, told him what I, that her son was really interested. She loved that I loved watching him and patterned myself after him, too, because I liked what Ron did. And uh, Jay, of course, was nationally known at the time. And those two guys were instrumental in helping me. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when I went to Portland, Jay called and, as a reference and got me that job. 
Uh, I lasted all of three months. Why? I could Did not. Did you make somebody mad? No, no, it wasn't that. Okay. Yeah, I know that would, that would be what everybody might think, <laughs> but that was on my own. I could not stand the weather. It oh, rained sure. every single day. And when I went in and resigned, uh, I said to the general manager, who was a great guy, the people were great. I said, I just can't take this. And by the way, it was pouring down rain when I was in his office. And he says, uh, what are you talking about? He says, this is God's country. I said, God's country? Look out the window. I'll never forget this. I said, God must hate you. <laughs> oh my God. It rains every day. God must hate <laughs> I mean, I need to build an ark if I want to stay here. But when the sun did come out, it was beautiful. It was gorgeous, the mountains, but it didn't come out very often. Yeah, yeah. So I came back with no job. I was going to say, so you didn't have anything lined up. You no. just said, I can't take this. I so you take come it. back to St. Louis. Yep. And then uh, what? Amid, amid all kinds of criticisms from family members and everybody else. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. You know, you, you don't quit a job till you have a job. So I came back in the fall. And in February, I got tired of sitting around, sending tapes out and, you know, getting the same old rejections that you always get. So I, I kept thinking, you know, I've got to do something different. So I would started sending my tapes out wrapped as a Christmas gift. Because I thought news directors see a hundred tapes, they're gonna nothing separates it. There's a hundred tapes, they don't care. So if the one's wrapped as a Christmas present, maybe they'll look at it. So I started doing that and I got some feedback, some good feedback. And then I said, I'm gonna go down to channel four. And I drove down there with my tape, went in the lobby, and I said, I need to see John McKay. He was the general manager. And they called Fred Burroughs, who was the news director, and Fred came out and he said, uh, you know, he said, uh, you can't see him. He's just back from vacation, and he said, I can't even see him today. He's just too busy. I said, well, I'd rather hear that from him. So here I am, 22 years old, and this is my <laughs> response to Fred, basically saying, you liar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, I, and he said, uh, well, he said, I'm telling you, you can't see him. I said, well, I'll, I'll hang around. I'll catch him on his way out at 6 o'clock. Now, mind you, it's like noon. And he said, okay, be my guest. And he walks back in, and an hour later, he comes back out. And he said, look, why don't you just give me the tape? And I resisted again. And the third time he came out, about an hour later, I've been there now three and a half hours. I said, all right. I'll, you know, and I'm thinking to myself as I did it, I hate myself for doing this. It's never going to get into his hands. And I gave it to him. I went home. I was angry at myself. Uh, about 4.35 o'clock that afternoon, Tim Van Gelder calls. My, I'm at my parents' house. That's where I'm living. And he says, um, I don't know what you did. He said, but John McKay and Fred Burroughs want to see you tomorrow. Can you come down here at 3 o'clock? I'm like, ah, 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 let me check my schedule. And we should explain to everyone, <clears throat> Tim Van Gilder at the time was sports director. Correct. He was the main sports anchor, former Cardinals quarterback. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then he said, and I'm not supposed to tell you this, but they're going to offer you a job. Wow. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was you, you could have pinched me and I wouldn't have felt it. I'm walking on a cloud. I walk upstairs to my mother and I remember telling my mom, I just got hired at Channel 4. I don't know what I'm going to make or what I'm going to do, but I got a job. And I went down there the next day and John McKay Mike Estivo, who was the business manager for, they were owned by CBS at the time. Yeah. And uh, Don Merle, who was the program director, was also in there. I'll never forget Don, great guy. But Mike Estivo was New York through and through. Had the accent. You, you know, you, you look at Mike, you think, he's, he's kind of a mobster, isn't he? Yeah. And, and Mike says, hey, let me tell you something. He said, I don't know how you pulled this off. And he said, but I want your advice to give it to my son so that when he goes to get a job, he can do the same thing. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I was like, man, this is the greatest thing that ever happened. They gave me a three-year contract, and away we go. Wow. And in your early 20s in a top 20 22. market. I was 22. Wow. And the next year, we won an, I won an Emmy, and uh, McKay was proud as could be, and I love John McKay. I, I, he gave me my chance. 
and I never, I'll never forget him, even though I left there two and a half years later. Yeah, so why did you leave? I wanted to be off on weekends to do play-by-play. That was the driving force, right. and I was doing weekends and three days a week. Um, Tim was great to me. Gary Bender was there, yeah. if you remember. Gary was there. And I knew that I wasn't going to move up that ladder anytime soon. So I had to have a situation where I had more flexibility on the weekends. And Channel 2 offered me that. They offered me the sports director job. Mm-hmm. So I worked Monday through Friday, and I could do play-by-play on the weekends. And that's why I left. What play-by-play were you doing? At, the time? Uh, at that time, it was the infancy of ESPN. And, and those types of, of – I did the very first event on ESPN. It was a St. Louis U soccer game against UCLA. And it was not live. It was on tape delay. 79-ish, somewhere in there? Is, is uh, about? Somewhere around there. 79 yeah, yeah. probably would have been. Um, Bill McDermott and I did the, did the yeah, game together. Yeah. I went down to the Big Red game during the day. It was a Sunday. And after the Big Red game and I did all the interviews, I ran out to Francis Field and we did the soccer game. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I wanted to really do. And uh, I know John McKay was was not happy with me uh, for the longest time, and I felt bad about that because I was indebted to him. To this day, I'm indebted to him. Yeah, yeah. Because I wouldn't have anything I have without him. Kevin, where did the play-by-play go? Did did you do some other network stuff? I did. I mean, yeah, that's what I, I remember. Yeah, I ended up doing NFL play-by-play for NBC. Yeah. I uh, ended uh, later. I did NFL uh, play-by-play for Fox, and unfortunately, they only they'd give you two or three games. And then they'd say, you know, we'll call you. And then when you, you think you've you've got it made, you know, their producers are telling you you're the you're the best young guy we've got. Now, by the time I got to Fox, I wasn't that young anymore. And then they said, well, you know, your your age works against you. So um, it it never worked out on a permanent full time basis. But ESPN did. ESPN offered me a job in the early days. Chris Berman was there at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greg Gumbel. and I could have moved to Bristol. I just didn't want to do it. Yeah. But I'll tell you who had some insight. And this is a funny story. I'm doing the uh, studio work for their USFL coverage, the U.S. Football League in the spring. Donald Trump owned the New Jersey yes. Generals at the time. And I get a call, and it's Bob Costas, and he's living in New York at the time. And he says, when did you get this gig? And I said, uh, just recently. I said, you know, they want me to move here. I said, I don't think I'm going to do it. I remember, it's hard to imagine, but ESPN was not the monolith that it is today. Yes. And and he said, well, why not? He said, that job could be the one that we all want someday. That's what he said. Talk about a profit. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but I didn't take it, and uh, probably a, a mistake, a career mistake. So um, we're still in the mid late eighties. So now you're going to back to law school, I guess. At about yeah, eighty uh, eighty six, I went yeah. back to law school. I yeah. said, you know what, I'm going to law school. And while I was in law school, I was still doing play by play for college conferences. I did the ACC and the Southwest Conference and the Big Eight. It was the Big Eight then. And so I did those conferences, football and basketball. So I would do, I would take law school classes Monday through Thursday, Thursday night. And I was going through a divorce at the time, and I had a two-year-old son, but I had him. Uh, and I said, okay, we're packing up. We drive to St. Louis. I was going to Mizzou's law school. He'd stay at my mom and dad's. I'd catch the first Friday morning flight out, go to. Uh, for one year, I was doing TBS's studio uh, halftime pregame shows for the, their college football. So I'd fly to Atlanta go on the air, do the pregame show, pull my law books out, study while the first and second quarter were going on. Mm-hmm. They'd throw it back to me every now and then. Uh, Chip Car- uh, Skip Carey, Chip's dad, was doing the games. And then other times I was doing play-by-play, so I was just traveling around to all the college campuses doing games, which I loved. I really enjoyed that time period, even though it was stressful with law school. Yeah, um, and a young son. And a young son, and I ended up with full custody of him. So uh, it was fun. I love the play-by-play, and I've, I have continue to do it until – 
my son started playing high school basketball, and I said, I can't do it. I got to watch him play. You know, people who hear this, and we'll, we'll kind of stop the time frame here and say, who may not know your background or, or know much about you, they'd say, man, this guy was on a path to make it big. He He's already at a top 20 CBS television affiliate. Um, he's being asked to go to Bristol to be on ESPN. He's doing play-by-play. And then he ends up just doing local St. Louis radio mm-hmm. in the early 90s. Oh, it's because he's a hothead. He made somebody mad. He made the wrong people mad. Or is it because you made lifestyle choices yourself and you just said, yeah, I don't think that's going to fit into what I want to do. What is it? It ended up being the lifestyle choice. And yeah. here was the key. Um, after I left Channel uh, 2, I was doing play-by-play and went to law school, of course. Um, Denver came calling. And a station out in Denver that was uh, run by a guy that I had known. I was doing the, um, uh, at that time, was it the Mountain West? I guess it would have been the Mountain West Conference today. Um, It was called something else then. But anyway, Utah was in it. And I was doing games at Utah. And the the guy who ran the package out there ended up being the general manager at uh, KOIN TV in Denver. So he called me and said, hey, would you come out and do local sports in Denver for me? And, and, you know, you continue to do the play-by-play. So I did. I went to Denver. And when I got to Denver, I had full custody of my son. And believe it or not, um, I had a judge, a female judge in Columbia, Missouri, who ruled. Uh, when I came in for the hearing, because my ex-wife had gone back to court and said, oh, you can't take the, our son out of the state, even though I had her on tape saying I could. So I had that little weapon in my pocket. But I said, um, to the, I said in court, I said, look, if I have to come back, I'll get, leave my job, but I'm not losing custody of my son. The judge ruled, I have to come back. <clears throat> so I kept custody, but I gave up the job. Mm. And so that was a lifestyle change. And I think had I stayed in Denver, things would have just kept going up. Got it. Because that guy was plugged in. Yep. And, of course, now he was mad at me. Yeah, right. So, uh, But you had to. I had, I had in my – I remember friends of mine saying, you know, I really admire what you did. I said, there's no admiration. I said, that's my son. I'm not going to leave him. Yeah, yeah. You know, I can always get a job. Um, the trajectories, though – as you pointed out, started to level off at that point. Yeah, so we're in St. Louis. So when was the... I was still in the business back then, and St. Louis Sports Radio was just starting to birth yeah. about that time. So you were plugged in right from the beginning, right? Yeah, originally, right uh, right at the at KSP, 1380. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rich Gray was the general manager. I had known Rich through basketball circles. He was involved in basketball, local basketball. In fact, later my son played for him, which is an ironic twist. Um but so Rich and I got together, and I, I, if I told you what I made when I started out at KSP, it was probably $75 a show. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It was absurd. Yeah. Um, and yet we built it, and, uh, you know, I did it my way, and so it sort of caught on. Yeah, and, and your way, and that's kind of where I first met you back then, and you were kind of that rabble rouser. I admit, I will say this. There was a part of me that envied that because that's not my personality so much. I, The reason why I got out of the industry, frankly, as I got into my early 30s, and you you kind of touched on this when you said something about you eventually became that older guy, right? Right. So I had my firstborn on the way in 94. My wife got pregnant in 93. And I was 31 years old at the time, starting to lose my hair. And I said, you know what? Someday... I'm going to be a 50-year-old bald guy making too much money. 
and they're going to bring in some pretty young thing. And you're going to be gone. And I'm gone. <laughs> and I'm going to have to find some other job in my 50s and maybe move to Cleveland to do it. I don't know if I want to do that. So either I'm going to just be content. And Doug Vaughn and I used to talk about this all the time. And and I would say, Doug, I, I think I want to make that decision on my own. Yeah. Well, what are you going to do? I don't know. I, there's nothing else I have a talent for. But I did enjoy the financial side of things. And I would go to the library and I'd look at value line and I would do stock picking. And one day over a beer with my stockbroker at the time, I lamented my fate. <laughs> and I said, I don't know what to do. I feel stuck. And he said, you would be good in this business. I'm like, what? Being a stockbroker? Well, you're a financial advisor. I said, I know nothing. And I'll never forget what he said. That knowledge comes later. Yeah. As long as you know how to communicate and you know how to talk to people and you know and you gain trust, you're a trustworthy guy, that's how you build your book. And the rest will come later. And Kevin, it was the greatest decision I ever made Isn't in my amazing? life. It was very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's why I went to those law school. early years. I, yeah. I wanted to have a, a, a backup. Yep. In a sense. I mean, I did like the law until I actually got into it. And I still do like when you can help people, mm -hmm. but, uh, the business itself isn't that, uh, I, I, bleh, bleh is what I will say to it. You know, when, when, when I think back in the nineties and, and sports radio really getting going here in St. Louis, did you enjoy those days? Do you look back fondly and I do those times? I do. I, I, I would not change anything about, uh, the, the career path I took. I would change I wish the opportunity to do play-by-play -play would have been at Channel 4 when I first went to Channel 4. Mm -hmm. I wish I wouldn't have had to leave there to get it. That's the one thing I would change if I could change anything. But I had to go. I wanted to do it. That was my dream. It's what I wanted to end up doing. My, my goal was to do uh, network play-by-play, -play, which I did. Mm -hmm. uh, I also wanted to work for a team. I never did that. But I worked for different networks and different conferences for years. Mm -hmm. And I got to know some of the greatest people. Bill Hancock, who is the in charge of the college football playoff. He just retired. It was, this was his last year as they go to a 12-team format next year. And I had him on my show 10 days ago. No one else had him on. I had the head guy on. Mm -hmm. And I had him on because back when I was doing the Big 8 football and basketball, he worked for the Big 8. And so that relationship stayed. And Bill's one of the nicest people on earth. And so we you know, remain in contact. And we, the, the interview... Uh, was a bunch of stories that we told yeah. from our days together. Yeah. We also talked about the format and the, the teams that were playing Michigan and Washington and that. But those are the kinds of relationships that I wouldn't trade. So everything that, that, that happened, it was all good. I just wish the opportunity to open that door to network play-by-play -play would have been more wide open. I did NFL Europe as well. Oh, did you really? Yeah, I did that, and that was fun. That was a lot of fun. You've mentioned some names of people that you've, you're still friends with to this day, and even those who have passed on, you remain friends to the day that they passed. Think about when you were growing up and even initially got into the business. In broadcasting in particular, who were the heavyweights for you? Who were the ones you admired? Who, that guy, whether it's St. Louis, National, wherever, who were your idols? It was always Cosell first, and then locally it was Ron Jacob and Jay. Um, and then, of course, when I when I got to uh, uh, Channel Four, Tim and, and Gary were of great help because they were mentors, and and it couldn't have been nicer. Couldn't have been nicer guys to work with. Um, but it's in the play by play world. Frank Gleiber, who worked for CBS, was always a guy that I admired. 
I loved his his play by play style. He was he was fantastic. And of course, growing up, Harry Carey and Jack Buck. Mm-hmm. I mean, Harry Carey really. I mean, and I love Jack, but I don't. And it's not casting the spurs on Jack at all. Mm-hmm. I just loved Harry's style. Yeah, I just loved it. And I, when I did play-by-play, I was a, a miniature Harry Carey. I was passionate. I was exciting. Uh, at least I thought it was because I was excited. It excited me to be doing. I'm doing the. I'm the luckiest guy on earth. Yeah. I'm doing these games. These coaches are talking to me like I'm, a, a, you know, one of their equals. And we broadcast those games and have so much fun. And the people I met, uh, I wouldn't trade it. You know, uh, one of the main reasons I wanted to be a sportscaster was years ago, and this was in the '70s. On, I think it was Sunday mornings, or maybe it was the week after Saturday, but it was the Notre Dame recaps with Lindsey Lindsay Nelson. Nelson. And I, his voice to me was like he was great. silk. Off the tail Lindsay, of the tandem, he would oh, say. And we, we moved to further yes, action. Exactly. We moved to further action. <laughs> like, I want to do that. Oh, I, I watched those religiously. I was a Notre Dame fan. Huh. So you had to watch. And Lindsey Nelson was the golden voice. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, Years later, when I was looking to do baseball play-by-play, Jack Buck put me in touch with Lindsey. Lindsey is a Tennessean and just a wonderful man. Mm -hmm. Nicest guy in the world. Opened some doors for me, but the baseball thing never worked out. I was always too busy doing something else, uh, and I didn't want to really do 162 games. Yeah. Anyone in today's environment, nationally, locally, or anyone in sports media say, you know what, I don't care for a lot of people, but that guy's pretty good. Sean McDonough. Yeah. Sean McDonough, I think, is the best play-by-play guy in sports today. Hmm. I think he's just... What makes him good? He's knowledgeable. He's passionate. He's exciting. He gets my attention. He knows the game. He tells me things I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I could watch Kirk Herbstreet on ESPN do college football from now until the end of time, Mm -hmm. and he would never tell me something I don't already know. (laughs) He hasn't done it in 20 years. Why would I think he's going to do it in the future? Um, The guys that I can't stand would be Mike Tirico. I can't stomach him. Um, And why? He's a job hog. He tries to take everybody's job. I told Casas one time, he's coming for you. And he, he laughed. He said, why do you say that? I said, because he is. That's why. <laughs> and sure enough, he did. Yeah, yeah. He ended up being the host of the Olympics, and Casas was out. I said, he's, I've never seen a bigger job hog in my life. But um, uh, Jim Nance uh, is another one. Jim Nance, and of course, Joe Buck. I, I, I've always liked Joe. But Jim Nance was an, one of the nicest people I've ever met. Mm-hmm. Uh, offered me help. With CBS, in fact, he said when he watched a tape of mine, he said, you should be doing Sunday afternoon football. And he said, and you should be doing it with CBS. And so he put me in touch with this guy who never returned a call. I called this guy like a pest. Mm. And so I, I didn't want to bother Jim uh, because he had helped me out, but I sent him a note and I said, Jim, he's never called me back. And he said, well, I'll get a hold of him. And I never heard anything back from this guy again, and I didn't bother Nance again. I just let it die. Probably shouldn't have. Yeah. Um, you have had over the years, I'm going to go to print now, kind of a, it seems to me a love-hate relationship with Bernie Miklas. Bernie, for those of you not in St. Louis, is a longtime well-known print reporter who's turned to radio eventually, but still well-known in St. Louis. And there were times I'd hear you, you just cut him a new one. And there were times where you became colleagues. Yeah. Like you are now. Like we are now. And so um, tell me about that relationship over the years. I think uh, through the years, uh, Bernie, I, I'm I'm this guy that that's watches the media and I say, you know, again, why am I the only one swimming upstream? Why doesn't somebody of Bernie's clout with the newspaper take a tougher stance toward these people? And he, and he thinks he did. And he would always tell me, he said, well, I do. And I said, no, you don't. I said, you don't risk what I risk. 
And I said, and that's the difference. You, you'll say this and that, and, and, I, and I get it, and you do more than other people do. But you have enough clout to do more. And that's how I always saw it. Bernie saw it differently. And Bernie said to me one time, and here's how he described it, and I think he might be right. He said, you don't think I go far enough, and sometimes I think you go too far. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fair. You know, and I, I'm open to that. I don't think I do, but if he thinks I do, that's I'm fair. Uh, I think that's a fair assessment of of how both of us saw it. Yeah, can sports journalists affect change, and should they necessarily by the way they report on their local sports organizations? I think they can. I think in different markets they do. Philadelphia, for one, uh, the people up there do affect change. Um, Brian Sutter thinks that I affected change yeah, right. here in St. Louis. Yeah. Uh, Larusa thinks I affected change. Mm-hmm. La- Larusa hates the ground I walk on. Uh, I'm not that fond of. And I was gonna say vice versa. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and I think if you're f- again, I'll go back to what I said earlier. If you're fair, and if you assess the situation and you and you report on it fairly, might be your questioning might be very difficult. Might be aggressive. I think I'm aggressive. I'm an aggressive questioner. Bill DeWitt the third might be mad at me still. We had an interview last spring that was very contentious. Mm-hmm. First time ever between us. Um, but I needed answers of questions that I think fans want to know. That's how I try to guide myself. What does is, what is the guy down there at the bar want to know? Mm-hmm. And nobody's going to ask Bill DeWitt III that, so I will. And uh, I think that you can affect change for the good if you're fair in your questioning. I know that that got the attention of the Cardinals. I know that. And I've been told that. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make me some sort of a hero riding on a white horse. That just makes me doing my job. And so I do believe Bernie could affect change. Uh, when he was at the post, I know he did. Um, and unfortunately, uh, if you take the entire rest of the sports media, you probably won't find anybody else yeah. uh, in this town right. that that has even tried. Right. I'm going to put you uh, on the psychiatrist couch here for a second as you do some self-examination. So I had mentioned that this comes naturally for you. You don't fake it. You don't try necessarily say, well, I'm going to say this because it's going to get great ratings. I'm not comfortable in doing it, but it's going to help me professionally. That's not you. That's not. It comes naturally. When you look back when you were younger, you were in school, elementary school, high school. Did you drive your teachers nuts? Were yeah. you the rabble rouser kid I back then? I always challenged authority. Mm. I never. I always questioned it. Um long time ago, I had a Little League coach who told me that. He said, don't ever be afraid to question authority. And I said, that's an interesting point. I wasn't quite sure what he meant at the time. I obviously figured it out. Um, and so to me, uh, that, that was always, I didn't accept what my teacher told me simply because that's my teacher. Mm. You know, if you're telling me something and I can go look it up and I can research it and I'm going to find my own answers. And if you're right, you're right. But I don't accept it because you're my teacher. I don't accept it because you're my coach. Isn't there a better way? You know, why do we run the ball up the middle all the time on third and one? Because the coach says so, and that's why we do it. But does that make sense to me? No, it does not. It doesn't make sense to me today. Mm-hmm. I think coaches are idiots. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. they all do the same thing. Every single t- I you can, you can count on it. Uh, and then I watched Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss, and he doesn't do it that way. And so I love watching that guy call plays. Those are my kind of people, the ones that are uh, off-center, the ones that aren't afraid to take risks, the ones that will push the envelope, the ones that will challenge authority. Those are the kind of people I admire. And uh, that's kind of how I was as a little kid. My mom will tell you that. Well, speaking of your mom, because I was going to even ask you about your own parents, so I'm sure that they had their hands full with you. But here's the thing that's endearing. 
for years you've always ended the show, love you mom, love you dad. Yeah. Tell us about that. When my mom died is when that began. Um, she died suddenly. Uh, they were getting uh, groceries at a Deerberg store and they had forgotten dog food. So she, my dad said, hold on right here. They'd gone through the checkout line. He went back to get it. While he was going back, a person was robbing the store and uh, they tried to apprehend him while he was still in the store, which was stupid because he's not guilty of anything until he leaves the store legally. So he breaks away from them. He crushes into my mom, knocks her into the cash register. She splits her leg open. They take her to the Christian Northeast Hospital at the time and uh, sewed her up, and she died that night of a heart attack in her sleep. Kevin, I don't remember that story. Yeah. What year was that? That would have been 97. Okay. 1997, right around my birthday that year. Mm. So that was tough for me. Um, it was tough for my whole family. But... Um, so that was a big loss because she, she was a feisty Irish Margaret Mary O'Connor. So that's that, where you got it. That tells From you. mom's side. Yeah. Mom was feisty. She, uh, I, I remember when I got divorced, she's a staunch Catholic. Uh, her cousin, my cousin, I guess he's my cousin somehow, he, she's her uncle, um, was a Monsignor. And so the Catholic Church would, you're out of the Catholic Church if you get divorced. So I'll never forget my mom. I can only hear her side of the conversation. She was on the phone, and she said to him, and I've never heard my mom say anything like this before, and she said, you can stick your Catholic church up your ass. <laughs> she was feisty. And, and I was, wow. And she never went to church again. She watched it on TV. Mm. She refused to go after that. That's, wow. that's how Mama Bear stood up for her son who got divorced. And uh, I never forgot that. And my dad was the same way. Uh, my dad, but my dad was uh, very conservative in the sense that what I did, he would advise me not to do. He would say, don't ruffle the waters, don't burn bridges, all sound advice. He wanted to play it safe. Yeah, yep. sound advice. I mean, remember, he's, he grew up in the Depression. Yeah. So, you know, you lost your job in the Depression, you were cooked. And all, it was all good advice. I just didn't take a lot of it because I was a little different. My older brothers, I had three older brothers, they all took that same advice. Ooh. And so I was the I was the odd duck in the family, and I had a younger sister. So I did not, uh, if, if you had looked at our family, you would have said, well, that one doesn't fit. Uh, you. <laughs> <Yeah>. Me. Yeah. <laughs> he did just, your dad pass on then? He did. He yeah, died really? uh, He died not uh, uh, two weeks after she died, he had a stroke. And that was a, down, a steady downturn. Um, and then he passed. He didn't pass away until... Well, let's see. He was in an assisted living home for a while, and, and he passed away there. Uh, so that's where that comes from, the love you, Mom, love you, Dad. It's yep. just to honor. When they died, yeah, yep. just to honor them. And now my sister uh, is the same way. She died of cancer. So it was just to honor them. I started. Here's the funny story, though, Dave. So I, I'd say that about my mom, and, and my dad and my sister and my brother came to a remote broadcast I did the week after my mom died because they knew I was going to be upset when I went back to work. So they were there for support. And uh, so when I said that at the end of the show, my dad, my dad says to my brother, I'll bet he'll never say that about me when I die. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, Dad, in yeah. heaven, look so at I, me. <laughs> I one-upped him. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> awesome. Oh, that's great. That's a great story, yeah. actually. Um, you know, family, I know, is, is very important to you because now I, you talk about your son. You talked about Troy a lot, particularly when yeah. he was in school. I know he played I local did. basketball. And, yeah. How important was that and is that relationship? It's the most important. I mean, um, like I said, I gave up a big job to make sure I still had 
the the primary force in raising him because I I knew I I had to raise him. If I didn't, he wouldn't he wouldn't have been what he is. I don't believe. But he is now, of course, a grown man who has children of his own, and uh, I couldn't be prouder of what he's become as a person, as a husband, as a father, as a son. Uh, it is so rewarding, as you know. And when you when you have a, a grandchild, it's it's. I'm I'm just telling you, I, I can't even put that into words. It's unbelievable. Does he have his dad's personality? Did he no. push back on you? Was no. he a hard case? And no, he 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 is not like me in that respect. He's very competitive, as athletes are. Um, you know, he wants to. If, if you talk to him, you'd say, "Gosh, he's the nicest guy." And then you go out on a basketball court or the golf course, mm-hmm. and he'll cut your throat out. Yeah, and and that's how competitive he is. But uh, in other situations, uh, we're not alike at all. And it, it's interesting because he sort of levels me off, and I think I kind of fire him up. Hmm. So it's it's hmm. kind of a neat uh, a combination. But yeah, I I would like to be more like him. Yeah, yeah, I really would. I admire him in in the way he handles his life better than I did. Well, speaking of that, are there times when you look back in your life and your career, your public persona? Because when Kevin Slayton did something wrong, it made news. Sure did. It's easy to follow what, what, what you've done. And so there were accusations of local celebrity, local sports people like a Steve Savard or a Randy Carricker saying that you threatened them. That would make news. You know, this, this Kevin Slayton, he's unhinged. It's one thing to be a rabble rouser on the right. radio and call it. But the guy has a screw loose, and he's going to kill somebody some way, and he's got anger management problems. Yes. I, I want la- you to take that and, and yeah, and I always laughed it. at that because that's that's the most absurd thing I've ever heard. And 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 here's what happens, and, and you know you, you pointed out when you're in the public eye, things are magnified. Did I make some mistakes? Yeah, a guy ran into my car at the arena after a Blues playoff game in traffic. I couldn't move; I was in line, and he rammed his car into the side of my car. And I had a date who was sitting there, and she could have been killed. So I jumped out of the car, and he's revving it up, and I walk over to his car, and he opens the door and slams it into my kneecap. So a fight ensues. Uh, I win the fight and lose the battle. So now this is big time. You know, I Kevin Slayton's arrested for assault. Well, I looked at it as self-defense, you know. So that makes big headlines. Now all of a sudden I'm, a, I'm this fighting guy. I'm, I'm causing trouble. I'm violent. I'm this. And um, the, the Savard thing was so laughable, it's not even funny. I used to make fun of him on the air, and he didn't like it. And so over at Rams Park, he threatened me. See, that's, that's how it gets bizarre. I was talking to the Channel 4 cameraman, who's a very nice man, and Savard walks in, and he says, oh, look who's here. Uh, nice of you to come to practice. I said, excuse me, who do you think you are? I said, you don't monitor my comings and goings, so I don't know who you think you are. Well, I'm telling you right now, he's right in my face, you know. And I said, take a swing. I said, I beg you, please just take one swing. And then, of course, people got in the middle of it, and that was the end of it. Mm-hmm. So there really wasn't anything to that. In Carricker's case, I, I, I never had any respect for him. He, I think he's the biggest butt kisser in the history of butt kissing, a guy who cries at a town hall meeting because the Rams are leaving. I mean, come on. So I'm down at Channel 5 doing this Sunday night show with Frank and, and, and uh, I think Mike Bush at that time. He was doing sports. So Carriker said something really personal while we were on the air at me that I didn't like. And so when we went to the break, I said, you ever say something like that again, I'll come over this table. And it wasn't a threat. It was a promise. And Norm Stewart called me. He was watching in Columbia. And he said, I, he goes, tell me what happened. He goes, because I told Virginia, his wife, 
Kevin's going over the table. Oh man! <laughs> he said when he when he heard what Carriker had said, he said he's going after him. And I said I could have, but I didn't. And that's that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that stuff gets blown out of proportion like crazy because I think it's all because of that fight at the arena. Ever from that point after anything that happened, and of course, people who were involved in it love to turn it that way. Well, what what the story that came out and it lasted for years, just to simplify it, and these would not be friends of yours, who said, well, Kevin Slayton uh, swings purses at women. Yeah. I'm not sure where that I, came from, but that's kind of the simplified version of what happened. Some guy down at uh, the Dubliner, after we had done a show down there, um, I was down there with a friend of mine and my girlfriend and a couple of other people. And we're, I was talking to these two guys who I thought were trying to be friendly after the show. One was standing to my right. The other was standing sort of on my left. They are about 10 feet away. And I noticed out of the corner of my eye they were both approaching. And so now I'm, not, I'm going, what's going on here? So sure enough, one guy lunges at me. The other guy tries to get me from behind. I turn around, and I had my girlfriend's purse in my hand, and I pushed him away. I had the purse in my hand, oh, and I pushed okay. him. That's where it comes and from. And that's all, that's all that was. Now, they, uh, the one of them, got arrested. I didn't. So it was, again, it, 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 these, these guys get a little liquid courage. Mm-hmm. You know, they drink a little, then they're going to take me on, and big deal. So you'd beat me up. I mean, is that what you're trying to do? Well, you've made some powerful people mad over the years. Were you ever, even anonymously, threatened where you didn't feel safe, where somebody said, knock it off or you're in big trouble? I never that felt ever- that. Uh, I know that LaRusso tried to get me fired. I know that. I know that's a fact. But um, as far as physically threatened, no. Or uh, did I ever feel like my life was in jeopardy? No, mm-hmm. I didn't. But career-wise, without question, yeah, right. that happened. But I'll also say this, um, and forgive me, I, I, gosh, I can't remember this gentleman's name. At any rate, um, he had taken over the Blues, and he was an old Anheuser Bush executive. Uh, and actually, I can't remember his name. I just don't want to say it. Mm-hmm. But um, he called me, and uh, this was during the Keenan. Mike Keenan was the coach. And I was at Channel 30 at the time. And the Blues had a news conference to announce something fairly big, and they didn't call Channel 30. And I called over there, and I asked to speak to him. And he came to the phone, and I said, here's the deal. You know, I said, I know you're new, and uh, here's how I'm going to handle this. You guys left us out. Now, I'm not going to accuse you of doing it intentionally, but if it happens again, we'll never cover anything that you do. You will cease to exist as far as I'm concerned. If that's what you want, then that's what you can have. So he said, can you come over for lunch tomorrow to the, to the Blues offices? Sorry, my eyes on fire here a little That's bit. That's all right. And um, I said, sure, I'll come over. So I went over, and this long conference room, this long table. Um, I'm, I'm at one end, and he comes in with some sandwiches, and he goes, I want to have conversations with you. He goes, because I think you sway public opinion. That's what he said to me. When you asked me that earlier, that was my first thought. And I said, well, I don't think I do. And he said, well, I, I've heard that you do in sports. And he said, what do you think of our coach? This was Keenan. Now, I had had a big dispute with Keenan. I had gone out to his house to interview him when he'd gotten fired, and he slammed the door in my face. Mm-hmm. And um, we, made, we, we made it into a funny thing because it was not too long after the O.J. Simpson Bronco chase. And so we, the Channel, Channel 2 at the time I was at now had a chopper, and they circled uh, Keenan, uh, Channel 30, I'm sorry, not Channel 2. They circled Keenan's house, 
because they were out there in that area, and there was a white Bronco in his driveway. So we made a, a big joke out of it, and he didn't like it. Mm. You know, we said, he's trying to get out of town. He's going to take his Bronco and escape down the highway. He's got a driver, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. It was a joke. Um, I it may, may not have gone over well. But anyway, um, so I said, well, I don't, I don't think much of him. I think he's a liar. And I said, uh, he's lied to me. But, you know, I don't, why would you ask me? Why would, I, why would you care what I think? And he said, well, I just want to know what you think. And he said, what about our – because we've talked to you now for 45 minutes, and we ha- you haven't mentioned our president, Jack Quinn. And I said, what do you want to know? And he said, what do you think of him? I said, I think he's a liar too. I said, they're both liars. I've been lied to by both of them. He said, oh, okay. He said, I'm, I'm just curious as to your input. 48 hours later, they were both fired. Oh, Mike. Was Mike Shanahan still – the no, guy at the time? no, he, no, he was okay. gone. Okay. Um, 48 hours later, they're both fired. And I, I called him up and I said, um, well, I said, I would also like a membership at Augusta. Can you do that? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and he had a good laugh. And I said, would you do me a favor? Would you give me the, the scoop on who the next coach is? And he said, I promise I will. He said, I respect you for coming over here and talking to me. Good enough. I'm at a St. Louis U High CBC basketball game watching the game. I get a call. And he says, I've got my grandson on my lap. And he goes, but I told you I would call you. He says, we've, we've come to terms with a new coach, and I wanted to give it to you first. And this is about 8 o'clock at night on a Friday night. And I said, okay, I can't appreciate this any more than I do. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was Joe Quenville. I was just going to say, I bet you that was Quenville. Yeah. yeah. And so I had it at 10 o'clock, and nobody else did. So sometimes those things pay off. Yeah, yeah. Being honest with someone, a, a person who appreciated it, and wanted, he wanted my honest input. Not that it mattered. But apparently it mattered a little bit. You know, I have to address one name that you mentioned because it, it was a long-going feud. It was well-known. It almost sounded personal at times on both sides, but that is Tony La Russa. It, it is personal. And what—so he comes in in 96. Okay, he's the manager, whatever, you're doing your thing. When did it go off the rails? It's unbelievable, really, because in 96, remember his dispute with Ozzy? Yes, yes. So I go down to spring training, and I get an interview with Larusa in the hotel lobby. We set it up. It's a big deal. It, we, it's about a half hour. It's a really good interview. It goes well. Afterwards, he says to me, nobody's ever asked me good questions like that. He said, I really appreciate this interview. I'm thinking, man, this is a great relationship off to a great start. Mm-hmm. And it was, so everything went well. And at some point... It went, and I couldn't even pinpoint to you, except that I was critical of him. And he didn't like that. And so when I was critical of him, all of a sudden word got back to me, hey, LaRusse is really pissed at you because you don't come to the locker room after the game. I said, that's because it's not my job. You know, I don't, I don't do post-game interviews. If he wants to do an interview, he knows where I am. Mm-hmm. I've had a good interview with him before. I'd do it again. So, of course, he never did. And then um, when, when – uh, I'm trying to think of how – I then stood up for Ozzy yeah. uh, because I believed Ozzy's version of events. I, I think Larusa had the intention of being honest with Ozzy and Royce Clayton, who was the guy that he gave the job to, but he, I don't think he was honest with Ozzy. And I trust Ozzy. I've known Ozzy a long time, and, and when Ozzy tells me something, I, I trust him. Because didn't Tony <clears throat> say this is a spring training battle, and whoever yes. plays best is going to get the and job? And Ozzy played better. Statistically, Ozzy played better. He did. But Royce got the job. Exactly. And that, that did not sit well with Ozzy, as it wouldn't with anybody. Mm-hmm. So I think that was part of it, too. He felt like I sided with Ozzy. Uh, I, I thought that was juvenile. Um, you know, I wasn't siding with anybody. And so from then, from that point on, anytime I was critical of him, 
he made a point to get the word back to me that he was very upset about it. And I said, I don't know if he's trying to intimidate me, but it's not going to work. I'm, I'm not going to stop being offering a fair critique. Uh, so I don't understand that. I never did understand that, uh, other than his ego. And then at that point, he tried to get me fired when I went on the radio, and we had Dave Duncan yeah. on the show. Um, and this was... <laughs> Somehow I was blamed for putting Duncan on the air without his knowledge. I was at Ozzy's restaurant doing my show on remote. I had no control over anything, physical control over anything. So the producer called and he said, we're, we're going to have Duncan on. I said, well, why are we having Duncan on? We just had him on last week. You know, we, we had just had him on. And he said, well, you know, I don't, and I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm not that crazy about having him on again. What's he going to tell me he didn't tell me last week? So we're sitting there and all of a sudden I hear in my head said, oh, D Dave Duncan's on. I'm like, Dave Duncan? I said, is this Dave Duncan? And he said, yep. And I said, hi, Dave. You know, Kevin Slayton, we're on the air from Ozzy's. And he goes, well, we better not be on the air. I said, well, of course we are. I said, they told you. They just put you on. He said, well, nobody told me. I said, well, what do you mean they didn't tell you? I'm telling you. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, it went south from there. And he said, you're the guy who, uh, who, who doesn't like Tony. I said, let me tell you something. And this, this is the truth. I'm the only guy in this town that defended LaRusso when he got his DWI. Nobody else did. Everybody else wanted his scalp. And I said, it's a, it's a random run-of-the-mill DWI. By run-of-the-mill, I mean it could happen to anybody. It happened to him. I'm not there to, to, to pass judgment on Tony La Russa because he got a DWI. There but for the grace of God goes everybody, unless you're going to lie to me and tell me that you've never drank and driven because I don't believe you, mm -hmm. <laughs> unless you're a teetotaler. Yep. Then I'll believe you. Yep. But um, So I said, so I defended him. So don't give me any of your crap. You know, I'm, I'm not going to listen to it. And so he got ticked off, hung up. And then lodged complaints all over creation. And they used that to try to get me fired. LaRussa called the station. He wanted me fired. What, who are you, Tony LaRussa? You weren't even a subject of the conversation. Mm -hmm. I mean, a, a, a part of the conversation. So it ended up working, though, because they fired me. Mm -hmm. I actually was listening live to that. And I just thought, holy cow, this is not going to go well. Part of the reason is because... I'd kind of referred to this before. This is Cardinal Nation. We love our heroes. Yeah. We love our team. Even if they're a middling team that finishes with 90-some losses like this Very year, true. we expect them that they're going to come back. We love them. We're still going to 30,000 people back out at the stadiums again. Kevin Slayton comes along and, and kind of says the emperor has no clothes, and we don't like that. They don't like that. And so there's some power there with a LaRusso or with a, with a Duncan. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think it got to the point, honestly, where you could not look at it from an unbiased way anymore to say, this is a guy who became the most successful manager in Cardinal history. He won a couple of World Series. His record speaks for itself. Would you still say, as I've heard you say, he just wasn't a very good manager? Yeah, and here's, here's, here's how I back that up. Um, and, and the question is a good one because I would check myself at times. I would say, okay, are you just letting your personal, the fact that you personally detest this guy, uh, color your judgment? And I always came back with, if, you can, if, if I can give myself, my little guy here on the shoulder talking to me, the reasoning behind what I'm saying, then okay, go with it. If you can't, then, it, then it's too personal. And I could. And my reasoning was very simple. Um, I believe that LaRusa was a coward in, the, in, in managing. And I don't mean a coward, I'm going to fight you, no, I'm going to run away. I mean, he would never take a team that didn't have the best players. 
If you follow his career, you'll see that. Lou Pinella took over a rotten Tampa Bay team late in his career after winning a World Series in Cincinnati. Tony La Russa would never take that team over because they can't win. He wants a ready-made winning team that you and I could manage. Is it really managerial excellence to write Albert Pujols' number and name third in the lineup, Scott Rowland fourth, Edmonds third? Is that really hard? I don't give anybody credit for that. Uh, you know, to me, uh, a manager makes his uh, – Whitey White, said it best. Whitey said you should make a difference in about 10 games a year mm-hmm. as a manager. Mm-hmm. And he said you don't blow those 10 games. Mm-hmm. And he said otherwise stay out of the way. And I think he's right. Know how to handle pitching staff, which I didn't think Larusa did. I thought Whitey did. And, um, you know, take it from there. But I So I thought he got a lot, way too much credit for managing a team that was ready-made. And the Oakland A's were ready-made when he won with them. Mm-hmm. So every team he was with early in his career with the White Sox, that was a, a Jerry Reinsdorf put together one of the better teams. But he would never, as soon as the A's got bad, he quit. He, where did he go? He came to St. Louis, where the team was already made. Remember, Tony La Russa didn't want to keep Pujols on the roster his rookie year. Pujols stayed because Bobby Bonilla got hurt. Mm-hmm. If Bonilla doesn't get hurt, Albert, we, maybe we don't ever hear yeah, about Albert right. Pujols. You know, you said something interesting that I've always believed, and that is, and we'll just keep it to baseball for right now. Managers get, I think, way too much credit, sometimes way too much blame. And I've always been a guy who says, look, put your best guys out there and play them. I agree. And make a few moves now and then. And here, let me give you an example of that. Joe Torrey, okay? Joe Torrey is the St. Louis manager in the early 90s. For a team that just wasn't very good, right? Middling, average team never went to the playoffs. We don't we don't have many eras of Cardinals history of that, but that occurred in the early nineties. The same Joe Torre is in the Hall of Fame because he won five World Series with the New York Yankees. He didn't all of a sudden become smart. No, he didn't become a better manager. It's because all of a sudden he had all these future Hall of Famers. I always and this is no knock against Joe Torre. I always liked Joe Torre. I grew up idolizing the guy when he was a player. But it just goes to show that Joe Torrey was a guy who understood that, I think. Now, he could he could sit back and do nothing with the Cardinals in the early 90s. Whitey Herzog probably couldn't have won with that team. In fact, he could see it coming right. in the 90s. Like, I'm out of here. Got is, and the Bush family has lost interest in running this organization, and he kind of saw that. So it gets to your point, though, that I think coaches – so coaches are really shown. I think of Bruce Bochy, for example. He, um, he, he In San Diego, he has some success there with a team that hadn't. He goes to the Giants, wins several World Series. His first year with the Rangers, a team that had been losing 100 games. Now, that guy's got some kind of managerial magic. Well, I, I think th- that there's a big case to be made, and I've always said this, coaching matters. It does matter. It matters less in baseball, I think, than it does in other sports. Torrey is a perfect example. Torrey understood his role was to stay out of the way. Mm-hmm. And with the Yankees in those days, remember the American League had the DH and the National League didn't. So you really had very little to do strategic-wise in the game. You just you trotted out several Hall of Famers, and then you threw pitchers who were Hall of Famers, mm-hmm. and you just sat back. Yeah. You know, and you were the toast of the town. We could have been Hall of Famers. We could have been. Yeah. If we had convinced Steinbrenner to let us manage yes. that team, yeah. we could have. In Bochy's case, I don't think the Giants were the most talented team. I think Bruce Bochy got them to win somehow, mm-hmm. some way. Mm-hmm. That was not the most talented team. They had interchangeable parts almost every year. Right. And then he comes to the Rangers. Now it's a little different with the Rangers, but I do believe that there's a culture that you establish as a manager, a winning culture. 
when you're a player for the Rangers and you see Bruce Bochy coming in, you're all of a sudden paying attention because this guy's a winner. Right. You already know he is. He's been established as one. Having said that, the Rangers made wholesale changes yes, they in did. that offseason and brought him some really good players. That's the only reason Bochy came out of retirement. The only reason. Saw if they had stayed with their roster that they had, he wouldn't have been there. Right. And they wouldn't have won. So that goes into it, too. I think basketball and football uh, have more strategy than any of the sports Especially in terms football, of coaching. Especially football, no yeah. question. Yeah. You still have to have the talent, as Bilicek has shown. He's found that All out. All of fame coach to, I, I might get fired. Yeah, who are these people? Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think that that's the case. And I agree with you that they get too much credit. They probably get too much blame. Uh, in LaRusso's case, I thought he coasted on those teams. Remember, he also wanted to bench David Freeze in the 2011 playoffs. I didn't re- yeah, I recall the, after, after a game against Philadelphia in the first round, he was going to bench David Freeze. He was talked out of it by his coaches. And David becomes, as we know now, mm-hmm. the, the history maker of all time. But he was going to bench him. Yeah. So I, I look at LaRusso, and I also say this. He, he knows that he managed during the steroid era. He knows a lot of his success came from steroid-induced players. He knows that. We know it. He and Bobby Cox and Joe Torre all went in the Hall of Fame together. All three owe much of their success to steroid players. If I were them, I, and I say this, I don't know if I would have or not, I would have said no thanks to the Hall of Fame. Uh, it was a bad time for baseball. I shouldn't be capitalizing on having players who clearly cheated. Mm-hmm. So Barry Bonds? Clearly. I clearly mean, a cheater. Would, so you he should not be, in, should the not be in the Hall of Fame. Pete Rose, nothing he about steroids. He should be in the Hall of Fame. Okay. He should be. If we start taking players out for what we consider to be character issues, we wouldn't have anybody in the Hall of Fame. Right. Babe Ruth wouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Can't do that. The steroid thing is different than character. The steroid is performance-enhancing drugs. You are changing the way the game is played. And anybody who says to me, well, you couldn't hit 70 home runs, of course I couldn't. I'm not a Major League Baseball player. Mm-hmm. But a Major League Baseball player becomes a lot better because Mark McGuire's fly balls that were outs are now 400-foot home runs. Mm-hmm. So there's a big difference. And if there wasn't a big difference, why did those numbers go away when they caught everybody? Mm-hmm. You don't see that happening today. Nobody's hitting 70 home runs anymore. I want to look at today's current environments, especially from college athletics. Who are, whether it's basketball, I know you're always a Norm Stewart guy, but I want to talk about like now. Basketball, football, who do you look like? Are you a Harbaugh fan? Or I am. Or are you? Okay, I like so, him. It, so it kind of fits with me. Yeah, yeah, that's well, that's true. <laughs> he does he does things to his own drummer. You know, let let let's bring it home to Mizzou. Okay, uh, I've heard you're drinking with Drinkwitz, which is always kind of a funny thing. Did this year? Did he do a great job in your opinion? Here, is, here here's how I opinion. evaluate the, the Missouri football situation. Um, as someone who I think knows something about football, I don't think he's any different coach than he was the first three years when he couldn't win anything. I think what he did that was smart was he recognized, and this is rare in coaching, so it's a, it's a huge compliment, I think. People think, well, you're just too hard on drinkers. Well, I'm about to pay him the highest compliment I think I can pay him. He realized his weaknesses. He could not call plays. He was atrocious at it, and yet he thought he was great. And he, at some point, either someone told him, hey, dude, you're about to lose your job, or change. Get someone in here who, who can call plays. And he did. To his credit, he did. He brought in Kirby Moore, who I thought from the first game on, I said to buddies of mine who were watching the game, I said, it's a completely different offense. Mm-hmm. They're, the, the play calling's spectacular. 
And sure enough, as the season wore on, you saw that. So I give Drinkwitz credit for stepping back and checking his ego at the door for a moment Mm -hmm. and realizing you're not the guy that should be calling plays. Get as far away from it as you can. The bubble screens don't work. Right. And so all of a sudden, this team starts to win. Now, he couldn't help himself in the post-game news conference against Ohio State when he said, you know, Kirby wanted to run Brady Cook down at the end zone, but I said, no, no, we're running Cody Schrader. So he's taking credit for the touchdown that won the game. He can't help himself. I think I think his ego is runaway. But um, my my point about what Mizzou did was, and I say this about all teams. Remember, I was at Mizzou in the seventies. They played. I had a breakfast with Steve Pizarkowitz and Mike Owens not too long ago. The quarterback and the center of the team in the seventy six and seventy seven seasons. Uh, seventy seven season, I believe it was. It might have been seventy six. I'd have to go back and check. Their schedule: eleven games. Eight opponents won at least eight games. Yeah. That's a schedule. Missouri plays a joke of a schedule now. Next year, even more so. They've even more so next year. It's, it's worse next year if that's possible. Keep in mind, before they played the Cotton Bowl against Iowa State or Ohio State, Missouri's biggest win came against a team with four losses. They beat Tennessee, four losses. They beat Kansas State, four losses. They lost at home to an LSU team that had four losses. They lost to Georgia, of course. But I said that the game that should give Missouri fans the most hope is the loss to Georgia. Mm-hmm. That you can go to Georgia against the number one ranked team in the country, defending two-time national champions, and compete with them on their field, and they did. Yes. And so I thought that should give Missouri fans a lot of hope. Uh, if they're going to compete against a team like that, sooner or later you'll get across the hump and you'll beat them. I think, unless Drinkwitz gets in the way. How about <laughs> the basketball team? I was excited last season. Dennis Gates' first season comes in. They actually get to the second round. They've really stumbled this year. I don't know if it's a Gates thing or it's just a transition sophomore thing because they've got apparently good recruiting coming in. How do you assess it? I never know about the recruits. I never pay attention to these recruiting services, and I'll tell you why in a moment. But So we don't know what's really coming in until we see them play. But the Missouri fans love to get on that bandwagon. Um, last year, somebody on Dennis Gates' staff, whether it's him or someone else, I don't know, he tells people that he's a C- he's a CEO. He's not an X's and O's guy. So I'm thinking it's someone else. But whoever took Kobe Brown and developed him into the player that he was last year and an NBA player now is a coach. That guy can coach whoever it is. Conzo Martin was a joke. Uh, that was a disastrous period of Missouri basketball, perhaps the darkest ever, other than Quinn Snyder. But you had Kobe Brown on your roster, and Kobe Brown averaged about three points a game. Mm-hmm. So you are one of the worst coaches, and your entire staff is one of the worst I've ever seen. So last year they do that, but that, but they were too dependent on three, on the three. I love the three, but you can't. It can't be your whole offense. And they didn't rebound. And I started to notice that they weren't rebounding during the season. Derek Chivas had lunch with um, Dennis Gates and told him, you know, hey, you know, coach, you got to take rebounding more seriously. And that's when he gave the X's and O's a CEO comment. Well, okay, if you're not going to rebound, you know, you're not going to win. So they go play Princeton in the NCAA tournament, and Princeton rebounds. Princeton blocks out. Princeton plays old-style basketball, and Princeton beats them into submission. Mm-hmm. So now we come to this year, and have they learned their lesson? No. They won't, they, they just got out-rebounded by Kentucky 42-27. to 27. Now that's a, a butt-kicking on the boards, and it's just effort. It's blocking out. But here's what told, uh, told me that Dennis Gates can't coach. They're playing Memphis earlier in the year. They're down 10 at home. With 10, 11 minutes left in the game, Missouri gets in a bonus. Now, any coach, and I know something about basketball, 
any coach would have his team under the instructions of this. It's very simple. Go to the basket. Go to the basket, get to the free throw line. We're shooting bonuses the rest of the way, boys. You're 10 behind. We'll erase that real fast. Not him. The first four possessions after they got the bonus, they come down, and the first shot is a three. All four times. And I said to myself, he can't coach. He just he, he told the analyst in the game last night he wanted Missouri to lead the nation in three-point shots. Not, not makes, three-point attempts. Mm-hmm. That's not coaching. Well, that's the that's the new era, right? Of the what's the word for it? The the, the statistical stuff that we're gonna. That's that's we we got all the brainiacs from Harvard right. mathematics right. who 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 build these computer algorithms and, and they tell us if if our guys can do this, forget about the talent. Right. We it, it's a numbers game, and if we do it this many times, it's ruined a lot of sports. Where's the feel? I agree of, of with you. Things. I couldn't agree more. It's it's ruining the games. Yeah, I mean, there, you you tell me, you know, sports, Dave. You tell me when you watch Missouri play, or for that matter, a lot of teams. What offense are they running? No. They're not running any offense. Mm-hmm. They're just coming out and jacking it up. And and in Missouri's case, they don't even go get it after they jack it up. They just head back down the other way. It it drives me crazy. I'm a little bit of a basketball purist. But as far as the recruiting goes, I'll, I'll give you a good story on this. So when my son was playing, um, he was. Heavily recruited by a lot of a lot of schools. He's at an AU tournament, and I'm sitting next to a guy in the stands. And uh, now these guys who write these newsletters and these recruiting services, universities pay them big money. Why I don't know. And after this story, you'll wonder why too. So I'm sitting next to this guy, and he's taking notes. And I said, I introduced myself. We're talking, and I said, Yeah, Troy's my son. He said, Yeah, I know that. He goes, I, I knew that. And he goes, I'm just all he did was pay compliments then, you know, to about Troy. So I think Troy's a pretty good player, but he ain't that good as good as this guy's telling me. And um, I watched, and uh, I, I, I finally said, you know, how did you get into this? He said, well, when I was in prison, I was talking to a guy. <laughs> and, and I'm like, did you just say when you were in prison, this is how you got into this? That was the end for me. Mm-hmm. The recruiting services mean nothing to me yeah, now. Yeah. So when I hear Missouri's got the greatest recruiting class, I say, okay, let's wait until they play. Yeah, they might. Who knows? Yeah, they might. Let's see the stats. And I'll be happy to salute them. Yep. But let's see them play. Right. Why were you such a big fan of not so much Norm Stewart, the person, which you are, but as a coach? Why was he good? Norm came out of the, the mold of the guys that I love and admire, the Bobby Knights, the Norm Stewarts, the guys who were disciplinarians, who coached the game properly in my book. Um, you, If you played hard for Norm, you were hard-nosed or you didn't play. And you played the game the right way. And uh, to me, um, after a while, it was hard for me to separate the coach from the person because I had so much respect for Norm as a person. And there is no better person in, in sports probably that I've ever met. But as a coach, he, he got the most out of players that you might not think would make it somewhere else, but he got, he got it out of them. And he always told me something that was very important, I thought, for Missouri people to know, that he would take the player that was considered the best player in Missouri in high school for that year, even if he didn't think he could play at Missouri. Hmm. And he said, because I want all of the coaches and all of the players in our state to know that Missouri is number one for me. Mm. And so it should be for them. And, and, and the John Brown story, who was Norm's first prize recruit, in fact, the first, uh, first round pick for the NBA from Missouri, he said, you know, we were really recruiting hard when I first took the job because we just couldn't make inroads. He said, and then John Brown. And then they interviewed John Brown, and this was in the Norm documentary. And uh, John Brown says, 
you know, I had offers. Now, remember, this is in the 60s. He had offers in North Carolina and these other places, and they were going to pay him, and they were going to, mm-hmm. you know, cars. And mm-hmm. He had all these offers from a small Missouri town, and he said, but uh, Norm told my mom, his dad had died, told my mom that I'll give him a chance to play, but he'll get his degree. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Mm-hmm. He said, I was going to Missouri. So I had asked you if sometimes your personal feelings of Tony La Russa might color your opinion of him as a manager, and you were very honest about it. You you said you checked yourself on that. Could the opposite have been true of Norm, where you would look at Norm and go, he had a lot of great regular season success. He won a number of big eight championships. Come tournament time, man, his record just wasn't there. Why? Where did he fail? And if you're critical of him anywhere, would that be a fair criticism? Well, I think it, the criticism, if, if you're saying Missouri hasn't, won a national championship, they haven't. If you're saying Missouri hasn't been to the Final Four, they haven't. A lot of that is luck. But it's also true that they were upset in first rounds by teams they shouldn't have lost to. And that's something I've always pointed out. I also know this in conversations with Norm, because we've talked about that. And he told me many times, our priority when I started coaching was winning the conference championship. The NCAA tournament wasn't that big of a deal. And he said, so that was our philosophy. It was always bred into our players. We win the conference. That's what we're here to do. We beat KU and we win the conference. we win the conference. And if we do that, it's a great year. And an extra, okay, we get to go to the NCAA tournament. Okay, big deal. We won the conference. So Northern Iowa would sneak up and beat them. Mm -hmm. And somebody else would beat them. And and it got to him. I know know it, it, it was frustrating because the best team that he had, I thought, was the year that he got sick. And that team, I think, would have been in the Final Four. Rich Daly uh, was the assistant coach who took over the team in the game against Syracuse. Missouri's beating Syracuse fairly easily. Syracuse goes on a run. He doesn't call timeout. And now the game gets away, and they lose. And I think that team was headed for the Final Four. I don't and think about any that doubt. time, wasn't it the, the Tyus Edney UCLA? When was that? That was that later. Was a- that yeah. was later. But still, I but thought that team could a, have gone. Yes. Now, that's one of Norm's greatest coaching jobs. If you talk about a guy who could coach, that team had no business playing with UCLA. Mm-hmm. Had no business being in the game. And here they are winning the game, yeah. but for this last second dash. Mm-hmm. And go and UCLA won the national championship. Yeah, yeah. So those kinds of things, the priority of the conference championships was something that Norm will tell you today was always number one. Yeah, yeah. The NCAA tournament wasn't. In later years... You know, I think he probably was really desperate to win to get to the Final Four. Yeah. just didn't happen. Yeah, I, I, I can totally get that because it did change. Look, the NCAA tournament was not a big deal for decades. The NIT was even bigger it was way bigger. back in the day. A lot bigger when St. Louis U won it back in the yeah, 40s. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, if Norm were to coach today, he probably would look at it differently. He would look at it differently. There's yeah. no doubt. Yeah, and And your alumni and your donors look at it differently mm-hmm. now, but they didn't then. And if you remember, the NCAA tournament kept expanding. When John Wooden was winning those titles at UCLA, I think the field was 32 teams. Mm-hmm. Now it's doubled. So there's more games. It's, it's more difficult to get there. And yet, I'm not making excuses. I think if Norm would tell you one regret, that's his regret, mm-hmm. that they never got to a Final Four. And also he would tell you that some of it's good fortune. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, you, see, you see how some of these teams get there, and it's like, oh, yeah. The stars are shining brightly on you. Yes, exactly right. <laughs> and it just happens. Right. Um, but 
No, I don't think I ever – I had so much respect for him as a coach first and then got to know him as a, as a person. Uh, I just I, – I mean, I just love the guy. You know, when, when Tyus Edney made that mad dash, the next day, uh, Troy, who was very little at the time, we called him, and I said, Norm, Troy wants to talk to you. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Troy gets on and he goes, Coach, I'm so sorry. He, he said, I just wish that, that they would have stopped him. That was his kind of – he goes, how are you feeling? <laughs> So I take the phone and Norm goes, can Troy hear me? And I said, no. And he goes, how the F do you think I'm feeling? <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's Norm. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. When I was at Mizzou in the early 80s, one of the first um, jobs that I had was after a tough KU loss. I think it was KU. I think it was at Hearns at the time. And I got late to the station. I was working for that student, KOMU, Channel yeah. 8. And Channel I got there late. He had already had his little news conference thing outside the locker room. And all the lights were getting shut off. And I'm getting my cameraman. I'm going, hurry up before he goes back into the locker room. Coach, coach, coach. And he turns around. I go, hey, quick question. He goes, young man, you were not here in time. The news conference is over. Leave. <laughs> you know, I'm 5'10". This guy is towering <laughs> over me. I'm 20 years old or whatever. I'm going, oh, okay, coach. <laughs> he intimidated the heck out of me. Now, later on, you'd get to know this gentle giant of a man who had the most wonderful personality. Oh, but that was heart. my first experience with him. And I was intimidated. Well, he's a tough guy. Yeah, he was. You know, the rules are the rules. Mm -hmm. And uh, the players will tell you that. Uh, John Sunville always says, you know, my wife says Norm's the most wonderful person she's ever met. And Sunville says, and I say to her, you didn't play for him. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and what made him a great coach. That's right. You know, um, Kevin Slayton, thank you so much. Now, I want to uh, end this by talking about your future. We don't know the future, right? We don't. We could get hit by the bus tomorrow. But if you had any control, you going to keep doing this for a while? I am. I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, you know, being back at 590, when I, when I uh, went back over there, I said, I still love doing it. Good. I still enjoy it. I still holding, I love holding people accountable. Um, today, uh, a big interview with a, with a local lawyer judge over the suspension of the Illinois player for the allegations of rape. Um, if we believe in the presumption of innocence in this country, he should not be suspended. Mm -hmm. He should be playing. And we have seen women lie time and time again when they're accusing these people. We saw them lie and accuse Justice Gorsuch of the same thing, in, uh, not Gorsuch, but Kavanaugh, in his confirmation hearing. It, it happens. That's not to say this woman's lying. But you have the presumption of innocence, not the presumption of guilt. So until he's convicted, he should be allowed to play. And I predict he will sue Illinois. They've already sued in equity, so they're going to get a temporary restraining order hearing to reinstate him. He's going to win that. And then Illinois, when it's all said and done, is going to get sued by him in civil court for millions. Mm. And I think he'll win. They are hurting his... They're altering his life right now. We don't know if he's innocent or guilty. But until we do, we, we, we seem to be so petrified of social media nerds in this country. And Illinois, I can see them right now. Oh, we'll take such a beating on social media if we reinstate him. That's their, that's their thinking. Who cares? Here's how you do it. And I'm, I'm a simple person. Here's our news conference. Terrence Shannon Jr. has been reinstated. He will play until or if he's convicted. If he's never convicted, it doesn't matter. And that's the end of our news conference, by the way, and we'll have no further comment. Mm -hmm. And that's the end of it. And in four days after the social media storm dies off, nobody will care. 
So your point is, that's what keeps you going, yeah. is stories like that. that you have stories to tell. You have an opinion that a you think is still valid, a fight to a fight. fight. to fight. Yep. If there's a fight to fight, I want to fight it. And that's a fight to fight. Yeah. Because that kid, I don't know him, mm-hmm. but I, I know this. These are allegations. Mm-hmm. And I also know that people lie. So look at, if you want to look no further, look at Trevor Bauer, hmm. the pitcher for the Dodgers, who we now find out the girl was lying all along. Her own text messages now that have been revealed tell, it, tell us that she was trying to set him up to get $50 million from him. That's what, that was her price. He had signed a $100 million contract. And so she told these lies. Trevor Bauer lost $100 million, had to pitch in Japan, and now wants to be back in the major leagues, and no team will sign him. And I say shame on the Cardinals, shame on every team that turns him down. He is an ace. He would be the number one pitcher on the Cardinals staff today, but they won't touch him. And that's despicable. You know, I was And I gonna... say to the DeWitts, if that were your son, is that how you'd want him to be treated? You know, I said I was about to wrap it up, but what you're saying reminds me of actually something that you're well known for. The whole Penn State Joe Paterno thing, which I find fascinating, which we'll get to the point in a second, that you're a St. Louis guy. Right. And people would think, what do you care <laughs> right. about something that's happening in Pennsylvania that's a national story? But you took it upon yourself. You actually developed a name among people within the university and people who are fans of Joe Paterno, because I would hear people from there on your show. Why did you take that up? It was the the, the very basic belief that I live by and why I still do this is because it was wrong. What happened was wrong. Um, I'll never forget the first time they had the news conference, ESPN, of course. Louis Free, the former director of the FBI, is the one who did the investigation, quote-unquote. And he's handing out a summary of his investigation to the media people. It's not, it's not the report. It's a summary, his summary. So in other words, I'm already smelling a rat here. He's telling you what happened. He's not letting you develop your own story. You're going you're gonna to report this. And sure enough, within 15 minutes of that news conference, Joe Paterno's guilty, Jerry Sandusky's guilty, Penn State should be burned to the stake, burned to the ground, and that's the end of it. Louis Free says so. And I remember saying to myself, there's something missing here. So I got the report, and I read the report. Not his notes, but the report. And the report was full of lies, full of innuendo, full of nothing. Nothing substantive at all. He had nothing on anybody. And you have, at that time, no skin in the game. You have no, no skin connection to Penn State. Nope. The he, only connection I have to Penn State is they uh, play football, and I like football. Yeah. That was it. I didn't know Joe Paterno from Adam. I now know his wife, and I know his family. I didn't know the players. I now know some of them. I knew nobody in State College, Pennsylvania. But I knew a liar when I saw one, and Louis Free's a liar. Louis Free's a criminal. Louis Free belongs in jail. And I knew that when I read that report that it was full of it. It it wasn't that long. It was only about 60 pages. And he got $9 million for it. So I, as a lawyer, I knew that it was, there was nothing to it. So I started to uh, write things. And and then I heard about Sarah Lampy, who was running for Lieutenant governor in Missouri. Um, Gary Pinkle, who I was not fond of as a coach. I have nothing against Gary Pinkle personally or anything, but I didn't think he was a great coach. He said that, Joe Paterno was somebody he admired as a personal friend, as a man, and as a coach. She accuses Gary Pinkle of being a child pedophile enabler. I'll never forget that. That's what she called him. And she had it on her website. And she's running for lieutenant governor. So I'm thinking, okay, you put me in the unenviable position of defending Pinkle here now, but I'm going to. So I had my producer call her and and invite her on the show. I never tell them 
that I disagree with them or they won't come on. Mm-hmm. So she comes on and she starts to run her little scam on Gary Pinkle. And I said, hold on right here. I said, uh, I'm going to read to you what's on your website, what you claim Gary Pinkle is. And I wrote it. I said, is that misquoted or is that really what you think? And that was, are those your words? Oh, yeah, those are my words. I said, please explain yourself. I said, because Gary Pinkle expressed admiration for a guy. I said, do you know Joe Paterno? Have you ever met him? No, no, no. All of your answers are no. Do you know Gary Pinkle? Have you ever met him? No, no, no. And yet you called him a child pedophile enabler? I said, you're running for lieutenant governor? I said, shame on you. You're a disgrace. I said, you're the most despicable person I've ever talked to. That you would say that about two men that you've never met in your life. And you have them classified as pedophile enablers? And you're calling Paterno a pedophile. Pinkle's the enabler. I said, it's disgusting. I said, do you know anything? Have you read the free report? Well, I've read the uh, the uh, 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 the uh, the highlights. I said, have you read the report? The, I've read, the, uh, uh, no, no, the report. This is how I started every interview with every media person mm-hmm. nationally who was against Penn State. Not one of them read the report. Mm-hmm. Not one. That's how lazy they are. So I destroyed her. For 45 minutes, I kept her on the phone. She kept saying, you know, I'm just for the kids. I said, lady, everybody's for the kids, so knock it off. I said, I don't want to hear you're for the kids. You have destroyed the reputation of two men, and you don't care. So uh, this was 45 minutes of torture for her, I'm sure. She couldn't hang up because she's running for office. I was well, I was about to say, when did she hang up? But I, I, she finally, I finally got tired of beating oh, her up. Okay, <laughs> She was worthless at this point. She was a rag doll in the wind because I had exposed her for what she is. So... Um, I'm at home one day on a Saturday, and I'm, I'll check my email. And I look at my email. There's 5,000 emails from Penn State people all over the world. Mm. And I'm thinking, how did they? And it's, it's all one. It's, it's, they've listened to this interview. How the heck did they get a hold of this? Franco Harris's wife got a hold of it, and she put it on the Penn State chat boards. So all Penn State alums all over the world saw it and, and could hear it. So I've been invited to come up to games. I'm, wow. they've, they've sent me all kinds of hoodies and T-shirts. and I mean, you know, I'm their guy because mm-hmm. nobody's sticking up for Penn State. And they're wondering. All they wanted was the truth. And they said, do you know what the truth is? I said, no, I don't. I don't have any idea what the truth is. I do know liars when I see them, though, and I know that Louis Free's a liar. And I said, and judging by the way the media is acting, uh, there's a lot more to this story. Because they're lazy, and not one of them read the report that I'm finding out. So I went up to the opening game, um, and that, that's when I met Sue Paterno. She asked to meet me. She had, had me come to the house. They have a table, Dave, that spins around in their dining room, and she puts cookies on and, sp- and spins me. She says, have one of my cookies. And I said, oh, I don't need one, Sue, but thank you. And she goes, no, no. She says, Joe's recruits always eat my cookies, and you're one of Joe's recruits. Wow. And I'll never forget that. I got emotional at that time. And I remember telling, she said to me, you're the, you're the only person that stood up for him. She said, why? She said, you don't know him. You're not from Pennsylvania. I said, because it was wrong. I said, what was, what was happening was wrong. And I don't like that. You know, I'm, I'm, I may not have any power, but I'm going to say what I think. And all I did was investigate it, and I knew then it was a pack of lies. And um, they ended up giving me this uh, statue of a Nittany Lion, and it said, uh, Kevin Slayton, Defender of the Truth. Mm-hmm. is what it said and it came from the alumni and it meant the world to me that those people cared like that and we proved them right the the victories that were vacated so that it made Joe Paterno no longer the winningest coach in football had to be reinstated because Mark Emmert's a liar he was the NCAA president who refused to come on with me he's a liar 
and um, the rest of them, these victims of Jerry Sandusky. Now, I don't know the facts of Jerry Sandusky. I do know this. The episode that took place in the shower that everybody talked about, he was acquitted on that. So the other ones, I don't know. I don't know, I don't know where this all, the, the truth. I know that the, the prosecutor publicly on 60 Minutes said Joe Paterno had nothing to do with any of this. He knew nothing about it. The, the, the claim that Joe Paterno uh, knew everything and covered up and that Gary Schultz and Graham Spanier covered up, someday go on my website, kevinslatenshow.com, and listen to my interview with Graham Spanier, who had to wait years in order to do the interview, but he finally did it with me after he wrote his book and got out of jail. This guy was, Graham Spanier was a victim of child abuse, sexual abuse when he was a kid, mm. and they accused him of covering it up mm. and then sent him to jail for a short period of time, but treat him like a dog. And um, Graham Spanier was not a part of any cover-up. There was no cover-up. Joe Paterno was not involved in it. Joe Paterno reported it immediately to his superiors. What did, Joe Paterno didn't know anything about pedophilia. He was 85 years old. And they, and they said, well, you know, there's an email. This, this one lawyer who represented one of the victims, I had him on. He uh, ended up, it, it's probably my finest moment in journalism. This guy was so angry by the time he hung up because I had called him out on it. And I said, what email are you talking about? Oh, I can't find it. I said, you know why you can't find it? Because it doesn't exist. I said, you're a liar. There is no such email. And here's why. Joe Paterno didn't have email. Joe Paterno never had email. Mm. He's too old. He didn't even know what it was. And those are some of the things that that rankled me. And uh, Franco Harris became one of my best friends. Yeah, for uh, Penn State. Player. Former Penn yeah. State player and Franco, to his credit, a guy with a in Pittsburgh. By the way, he is Stan Musial. Yes, yes. They have a statue of Franco at the airport with an immaculate reception. He is big, and he put his reputation on the line by standing up for Paterno. And when the board of their, their answer to the board of curators of the board of trustees up there met secretly to remove the statue of Joe Paterno, when they were leaving in these vans, Franco Harris stood in the middle of the street and blocked them. Mm. It was very reminiscent of Beijing. Yeah, uh, Tiananmen Square. Tiananmen Square. Mm. I mean, it was unbelievable. There were pictures of it, and he's just standing there staring at them. Wouldn't let him leave. Now, by that time, a whole crowd had gathered around, uh, on, th but they weren't in the street. They were on the side. Only Franco stood alone in the street. So I want to be clear, because people listening to this and watching it are going to say, is Kevin Slayton saying that Jerry Sandusky didn't do any no, of that? No, I'm not, not saying say that. Okay. I'm not saying that. Uh, I, I, all I'm saying is he was convicted of, of offenses, so we'll, we'll leave it right there, yeah. because I don't know. But it's but the I, paternal thing that the, the accusation thing. was, he was told he knew about it, he did one Covered of these. Covered it up. Yeah. And Gary Schultz, who was the director of security for Penn State, and Graham Spanier, who was the president of Penn State, also were accused of that as was Tim Curley, the athletic director, none of which took part in any cover-up whatsoever. Mm. The lies, it shows you what happens when the fire starts and the gasoline keeps getting poured on. Mm -hmm. And Louis Free started it all. And um, it's, it's a shame because if you, if you listen to the Gary Span or Graham Spanier interview, you will hear a guy who's tortured and hurt to this day. Mm. Wonderful man. Just a wonderful man. His book is unbelievable. It's called Into the Lion's Den. Mm. And uh, I would recommend it for anybody if you want to read the real story. Well, I think you just got an essence of who Kevin Slayton is, um, taking issues that people normally would not get involved in, even if it um, it's it's cost you. It has. It has. It, it you, has. You, you've lost some jobs over over it. The Penn State thing cost me. Yeah. Uh, people, the, the, I was associated with child pedophilia all of a sudden. What? What? Yeah. I mean, you know, and Franco said to me, why did you take it up? 
I said, Franco, it's wrong. You know, I, I just kept that was always my answer. It's wrong what they're doing to Paterno and to Penn State. And if it's wrong, and I'm in this business, I'm going to say it's wrong. Yep. And and Sarah Lampy was the one. Sarah Lampy was so embarrassing. When I was when I was up at the first game, I'll tell you a real quick story. I'm at a tailgate party with some of the professors up there, the head of the psychiatric department, <laughs> big football fan, but he loved what I the work I had done. So. Uh, these kids came walking up and going, where's Kevin Slayton? We heard he's here. Mm -hmm. And he goes, he's right there. And they come walking over and they go, we listened to that Sarah Lampy interview all the way up from Pittsburgh. And they high-fiving. You know, finally somebody stood up for us. And that's what that they felt. They wanted to know the truth, but they also didn't want to get slandered yeah. by these lies. And they just wanted to know. And all the media people that I took on, including Christine Brennan from USA Today, who hung up after seven minutes mm -hmm. and then called my producers and said, why'd you hang up on me? He said, you hung up on us. But they all thought that I was on their side. That's how collectively media thinks. Yeah. Well, we can't be wrong. So you must think like we do. Mm -hmm. Well, you keep fighting the good fight. I right? will do it. I know Sorry, you I will. Know I rattled on there. No, no, no. It's, uh, it's awesome. That's why I had you on because you are a great storyteller. Let me, let me tell you this, and, and I mean this sincerely. I think you might be the best interviewer of anyone I know in the industry. I appreciate that and, very much. And, and you, and so... Even if I, there are times, I think I'm probably like the average listener. There are times it's like, Kevin, what you're speaking <laughs> is truth. And the next day, what are you talking about? <laughs> right. Where do you get that opinion? But that's the way it should be. No one should agree with you 100% of the time. We all have v our Vanilla opinions. would be bad. But, yeah. But, but I've always said, I've always said this about you. Love them, hate them, whatever. I don't know that there's a better interviewer. Because you have the ability to really get deep down into what somebody's thinking and before they before you know it sometimes they're revealing things that maybe they weren't they didn't want to or they weren't expecting to but you you have this unique ability to it's not just the usual how how'd you feel hitting that yeah, home run right. yesterday you know, no that, there's more than i couldn't that. live with myself if i yeah, did that yeah and and the key to me and i i can't tell you how much i appreciate it, it means a world coming from you if you want to be a good interviewer folks i would always suggest this listen to your subject Listen to their answers because your next question might be related to that answer. If you've got a list of questions you're going to ask, you're just a robot. But listen to what that person's saying because very often they'll reveal something that your next question should be about. And if you've got your list, you're never going to ask it. Right. So we'll end with you giving a little uh, promo for yourself. Where do people hear you now? And tell us about your podcast. KevinSlaytonShow.com is the podcast. We go live 7 to 9 in the morning Central Time. Uh, it's a political uh, show. It's all about politics. Be careful, folks. You've been warned. <laughs> but it's a lot of fun. We do stir the pot. Um, but we, I think we do it honestly, and we do it fairly, and we do it from a position of I use clips of people's own words. I don't have to tell you what a rotten human being Joe Biden is. I can let you listen to him or, or someone else. I have been critical of Donald Trump on the show, uh, his horrific uh, pattern of who he hires. Uh, when he was president, he hired some of the worst human beings on earth. There is a swamp in D.C., there's no question, and I think you'll enjoy the podcast. KevinSlaytonShow.com. And then we do our sports show from noon to 2, Central Time on 590 The Fan. All right. Kevin, thank you very much. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate it. All right. We'll talk to you again next time. Thank you so much for listening, and please forward the link to this podcast to friends, family, neighbors, even strangers. They'll thank you later. If you'd like more information on our wealth management team, just go to your search engine and type in Simons and Cordes. S-I-M-O-N-S and C-O-R-D-E-S, Simons and Cordes. And the website will be the first thing that pops up. I'll talk to you again soon on the next episode of the Simon Says Podcast.